From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. The ongoing war in Syria has led to the worst refugee crisis since World War II. Since 2012, more than 4 million people have fled Syria, seeking refuge in nearby Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. And now, many of those refugees are headed for Europe. The UN reports that more than 700,000 people have risked their lives on the treacherous journey across the Mediterranean so far this year. Once they arrive, they are often met with strict border patrols, barbed wire, and days, sometimes weeks, of waiting for immigration procedures that weren't designed to handle this huge influx of people. In a move that surprised many EU leaders, Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel has pledged to assist any refugees that make it to Germany, likely 800,000 refugees this year alone. And she has encouraged other EU nations to open their doors as well. Denn Europa ist eine Wertegemeinschaft, eine Rechts- und Verantwortungsgemeinschaft. Merkel says, because Europe is a community of values, a community of laws and responsibilities, and that means, for me, that we must orient ourselves to those values we set down in the European treaties. Some in Germany were thrilled by Merkel's offer. Hundreds of Germans lined up at border crossings and train stations to offer food, clothing and candy to the refugees who had finally come to the end of their long journey. Those who welcome refugees say it's not just a moral obligation. It'll also help with Germany's low birth rate and declining workforce. But others say Merkel has gone too far and that Germany is not in a position to help so many who are in need of so much. We Germans aren't the social problem solvers of Europe. Our biggest concern is that open-door immigration will create a series of problems that just cannot be solved. In the southeastern part of the country, key leaders from the Christian Social Union Party have been publicly critical of Merkel's open-door policy. If we don't put some kind of limit on this, we'll have no control over the situation at all. At the moment, we have no way of knowing who's coming into this country. If this continues, it will become a security issue. There's also a lingering fear of Islamic radicalism. In early October, the anti-immigration group Pegida celebrated their one-year anniversary with a renewed message about the anti-Islamization of Germany. Other countries across the EU and around the world are watching Germany. Some, like Sweden, have continued the generous immigration policies they've had in place for years. But in Hungary, the situation is very different. These were the last migrants to make it into Hungary before the country closed the southern border with Croatia from midnight local time. Hungary's newly completed razor wire fence has effectively closed off one of the main routes into the EU from parts south and east, leaving thousands of migrants to find different and often more dangerous routes into Germany. In the United States, the Obama administration has pledged to increase the number of refugees it'll take in over the next year. The Syrian refugee crisis isn't just something that's happening on the other side of the world for someone else to solve. It's a humanitarian crisis that none of us can ignore. 
The U.S. has given more aid money than any other nation, about $4.5 billion since the Syrian war began. But in that same time, America has only taken in a handful of Syrian refugees, just under 2,000 in the past four years. Officials say intense screening procedures intended to catch would-be terrorists have severely limited the number of Syrian refugees the U.S. can bring in at a time. Anti-immigration rhetoric from the nation's political candidates is also making headlines, most notably Donald Trump with his proposed initiative to seal off the border with Mexico. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words. While Trump's message may be more pomp than policy, his words have resonated with many Americans. A September Pew study showed that nearly half the U.S. population supports a border fence along the U.S.-Mexico border. Widespread support for refugees from the Middle East and North Africa seems unlikely. A similar study showed that Americans are split on whether the U.S. should take in additional Syrian refugees. Meanwhile, in Europe, Angela Merkel made a plea to Turkey. She offered more than $3 billion in aid and a pledge to help Turkey join the EU if Turkey would help stem the flood of refugees into Europe. The idea is to help Turkey keep more refugees here in the country by um, improving life conditions in refugee camps and by giving them the right to work. Representatives from across the EU continue to meet and discuss how to handle the crisis. The pushback from Germany's leaders and citizens grows daily, and there are rising fears that Angela Merkel will change her mind and close Germany's borders, which would create a devastating domino effect throughout Europe. And soon, the refugees will face yet another challenge, winter. America has been on the sidelines of Europe's refugee crisis, but Europeans are looking closely at American immigration policy for potential solutions. While immigration waves have been rare in Europe, they're part of the fabric of American history. Everybody has a friend or a relative who was a migrant here at some point in the past. Jack Goldstone is a professor of public policy at George Mason University and a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. He has spent much of his career looking at how people have moved from one area to another and how that impacts people worldwide. While we have anxieties about legal versus illegal migration, Uh, Most people take migration as part of American history, part of what built this nation. That's not true in Europe. Europe was a country of out-migration. It has only very recently, only in the last 25, 30 years, uh, been an area with a significant number of migrants from outside Europe coming in. The U.S. got its first experience with this 100 years ago, around the turn of the 20th century. That's when New York was flooded by Irish and Italian Catholics. There were a lot of gang conflicts and tensions between police and people, uh, but we overcame them because at the end of the day, once people got jobs, started working, uh, started showing that they just wanted to have a family, uh, have a home, 
have the same things that everyone else wanted, these differences were overcome. Now, it wasn't easy. We had a lot of investment in public education, English language instruction, civics. You know, we had an open path to citizenship for European immigrants, but they had to learn American history. They had to learn about uh, the principles of the Constitution. The path to U.S. citizenship is not an easy one, but it's well established and open to anyone who enters the country legally. If people really want to blend in, if they really want to work hard, if they want to become part of the American fabric, we welcome that. That's not true in Europe. Their history has been quite different. Uh, so what does it mean to be French? What does it mean to be German? Is it a matter of history, language, citizenship, blood? Uh, these are countries that had wars on their borders, wars of religion, wars of nationalism, you know, up until World War II, right? You know, less than 100 years ago, France and Germany were mortal enemies. And so these issues of national identity are still very passionate and problematic uh, in a way that's not true uh, here in the United States, where we have people from all over the world who have come and become citizens, politicians, business people. But this integration takes a major effort, a huge investment of money, time, and resources. The countries that are successful assimilating migrants have programs to help migrants in their transition, programs to help them with the language, local customs, finding jobs, finding housing. That's certainly what Australia, Canada, and America have found with immigrants. And I'm sure that's what Europe will find for the most part, too. You know, the, the real problems come if we say, we don't want these people, we're going to make it hard for them to blend in, uh, we're going to restrict their access to jobs and housing. That's when you really do start to get worse problems over time. Problems that Europe is already facing, like thousands of young Muslims leaving Europe to join the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, or worse, committing violent acts at home on European soil. But it doesn't have to be this way, Goldstone says. In many ways, Europe is on the brink of a great opportunity. Europe is just realizing, hey, we have to get on the path of integrating immigrants, taking advantage of their skills. Now, this, this huge migration flow that they're experiencing now, it's a test, but it's also, in a sense, a door into the future. There are lots of young people. There are lots of conflicts and problems. Europe will be the promised land. And so Europe, just like America for the last hundred years, uh, is going to have to come to the grips with, we are the promised land for people in our part of the world. How do we manage that to our benefit? And if Europe can do that, they will actually be a lot richer and more prosperous 20 years from now than they would have been without these migrants. Jack Goldstone is a professor of public policy at George Mason University and a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. You're listening to Understanding Europe's Refugee Crisis on America Abroad. When we come back, we'll try to answer the question, what can the world learn from Europe's refugee crisis? We bring together audiences in Berlin and New York for a town hall discussion. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad.
I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Understanding Europe's Refugee Crisis on America Abroad. In many ways, this is a turning point for Europe, and what happens there in the next few months and years will have a major impact on populations worldwide. But there's also an immediate humanitarian need as each day refugees risk their lives to make it onto European soil. To learn more about what's happening on the ground in Europe right now, we held a town hall event a few weeks ago, bringing together audiences in New York and Berlin in partnership with Zocalo Public Square, Democracy International, and NPR Berlin. Our guest hosts for this event were at WNYC in New York, Jackie Leiden, a longtime reporter and public radio host, and at Deutsche Bank in Berlin, Alessandra Galoni, global news editor for Reuters. She previously spent many years at the Wall Street Journal, most recently as its Italy bureau chief. We join the conversation as Alessandra introduces her panelists. First is Naomi Steinberg. She is the director of the Refugee Council USA, which is a coalition of non-governmental organizations that are dedicated to refugee protection and welcome. Then further to my left is Wenzel Michalski. He's the director of Human Rights Watch in Germany, and he has been on the ground uh, in Germany with refugees that have come in through uh, Syria, the Middle East, Northern Africa. Uh, then we have Astrid Siebert, who is a migration fellow of the Europe program of the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. And uh, last but not least, we have Susan Fratsky, who is a policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., <coughs> She is a specialist in EU asylum policy and labor market integration. So you can see that we have quite an accomplished panel over here in Berlin, Jackie. Alessandra, perhaps we'll hear first from uh, Wenzel Michalski. He's been on the ground in Germany with refugees coming in from Syria and all over. And tell us what things are like right now. Absolutely. Wenzel, I'm going to pass it straight to you. Well, let me just put it very simple. The situation is terrible for the people who reach Europe and who arrive in Germany. Having said this, they're in a much better place than from where they come from. So, for example, I was in Athens the other day, and I saw people camping on cardboard in a park, and I was pretty shocked to see all families there being proud that they have a little bit of cardboard to sit on, And that was all what they had. And they looked really exhausted from the dangerous trip from Turkey over the dangerous um, Mediterranean. And our translator, who himself was a refugee four years ago, said, yeah, but look, they sleep, and they sleep in peace. And they're not in danger to being killed by the Taliban or by ISIS. Um, On the other hand, we see terrible, terrible, heartbreaking stories. Uh, The other day... Colleagues of mine met a 10-year-old boy who was on his own in the first Greek hotspot, which was just opened, where it was a terrible apocalyptic atmosphere. And this little boy, you can imagine, was absolutely traumatized being there all on his own without any friends, any family and any help. Now, I'm going to jump on this word hotspot because hotspot is one of the policies that the EU has uh, introduced to deal with this crisis. Quickly go through what have been the most successful instant policies. Astrid first, perhaps, and Susan, what have been the most successful policies that have been introduced over these past dramatic months? Well, it depends how you define successful, I would have to say. Um, so far, we used to, or we still have the Dublin Agreement, where the people where they first, the country where they first arrive, this is also where they have to stay and get processed and uh, go through the uh, whole registration process, etc. Um, and so coming to the policy measures, the hotspots, 
uh, it's an awkward name for it, but it's more registration centers. People are now here, they get registered, fingerprinted, and those that have a good chance of getting asylum or protection, mostly here, judging by the country where they come from, this is mostly Syrians, but also from Eritrea, those people will be relocated, and uh, we have now a quota of 160,000 that will be relocated within the EU. For all others who are screened and where we see that their asylum request will be negative, they will be kept in those countries still, in Italy and Greece, but we need to figure out what will happen. And we'll come back to the issue of the people who are denied asylum, what happens to them, because it's clearly a big <laughs> issue. I mean, how do you judge this? I mean, obviously, Susan, you are in the U.S., but you are an expert on European policy. I mean, how do you judge this? I, I would uh, agree, basically, with what Astrid said, but maybe be a little bit more negative in terms of the what's been done in practice. Uh, I think that the idea that all European Union countries need to play a role and there needs to be a mechanism for determining who is responsible for asylum claims because the um, principles of Dublin aren't working. I think the that principle, establishing that principle, has been very valuable and also um, what has been done in terms of trying to provide more aid to the countries that are hosting most of the refugees, um, the additional billion euros that will be provided to UN agencies who are dealing with the Syria response. I think that's also a, a great principle that's been set. Um, in practice, there's still quite a lot more to be done figuring out exactly how these things will work. Um, only 17 people have been relocated so far. Ideally, the way the hotspots will work is that people will be registered there, but how do you ensure that people are going to stay there while they're being processed? Uh, it's something that no one has an answer to yet, and we've already seen um, that many people choose not to try their luck in one of the hotspot reception centers and to continue moving on. And if you have people who are waiting there to be processed, they need to have housing, they need to be fed, and that's already something that Greece is struggling with. And as you have more and more people waiting there, it's going to become a, a greater challenge. So I think the, the principles are great, but in practice, there's a lot more that needs to be done. You wanted to jump in here, and then I want to go to, to Naomi, but uh, you wanted to jump in here. Yeah, I wanted to add to the most successful or best working policies uh, two points. One is the search and rescue mission that was being picked up again after uh, the Italian one was cancelled in the spring. Also, we see many, many, many more people now crossing the Mediterranean. Um, we have actually less people drowning, although still much too many, but less people drowning than last year when less people came. And the other one, and I think this is the most successful policy, is Merkel's open-door policy, because if she wouldn't have done this and if she wouldn't have said it, that refugees, asylum seekers, are welcome in Germany, we would have seen people piling up on those tiny Greek islands, and the terrible situation we're seeing now there would have been even much worse. So you, the issue of leadership here at Naomi, this is the situation in Europe. Can you give us a, sort of a panoramic view of what you have seen in the U.S. when faced with a dramatic influx and listening to what has been attempted in Europe? You know, what would you say that works, does not work, and what could be learned on both sides of the ocean? Sure. Since the start of the conflict in Syria, the United States has resettled 1,993 Syrian refugees. It's laughable, except it's so pathetic, and it's people's lives that we're talking about. But keep in mind, right, that Germany is talking about welcoming 800,000 Syrians this year. And I know it's not easy. I know there are complications, and I know that there are pushbacks in some places. 
But the bottom line in the United States is that if we wanted to resettle more Syrian refugees, we could. If we had the political will, we could do that. The American public, I believe, wants to do this. My organization and the organizations that I work with have received thousands and thousands of calls and emails these last several months saying, how can we help? How can we welcome Syrians into our community? And it's really time to translate that power, that interest into real political action so that the United States steps up and fulfills its obligation as a world leader and a world refugee protection leader. I want to go back to civil society later Mm -hmm. because you you mentioned this, but I mean, clearly there are political risks is what's happening in Germany. I mean, Merkel you know, there are limitations to what she has said is her obligation. And she's receiving lots of criticism from within. Astrid. Well, I think first we have to um, point out that this number of 800,000, I received a lot of calls from foreign correspondents in the times when this number was announced. And people always thought, oh, wow, Germany has this quota of 800,000. It's not a quota. It's not an open arms policy in the beginning. It was merely stating the facts of how many people we were expecting. Communication plays such an important role. And there's been so many rumors, misperceptions about Germany's role and openness. It was not an open invitation. But what's the biggest misperception? Well, for example, we hear that, and and the German embassies have to fight a lot of rumors that Germany will send ships to Lebanon and Turkey. Apparently, people are waiting there at the shores because they are told Germany will, will save them or that everyone can get asylum. You just need to start moving. And we are seeing that people from Afghanistan are asking for passports and to get travel documents because they hear anyone who has a travel document can get asylum in Germany. So we're seeing that as a lot of misinformation. You raise an interesting point. I mean, is there an increasing tension between the asylum seekers and all the economic migrants, obviously, that have always come in into Europe, especially lately through Libya, through northern Africa, into through Italy and up? Has this put a strain on the definition? Susan? I I think that there is a a challenge um, trying to determine who is a refugee according to the legal definition. And sorry, is that a problem in the U.S.? I mean, do you face that same problem where you just... How do you define them? Well, in the U.S., we have two systems that we're talking about. The system with which I'm most familiar is our refugee resettlement program, when we resettle refugees from countries of first asylum. So we resettle a Syrian refugee from Jordan. We also have an asylum system, which is largely what we're talking about in the European context, when refugees show up on American shores and say, hey, I can't go back to my country. I can't because of persecution. May I stay here? So in both situations, though, there are very strict adjudication processes and screening processes, so we know for sure who is coming and that they are, in fact, meeting the refugee definition. Whereas in in Europe, I'll let you continue. The screening process where people are arriving um, hasn't been functioning in the way that it ideally would, uh, part because of the number of flows that are arriving and uh, part because of um, deficiencies that have been long-standing. But it, there's just one further point that I would make here, which I think is another lesson to be drawn from this particular crisis, is that while there's a clear legal definition between who qualifies as a refugee and who does not, individual motivations are much more difficult to parse in that clean manner. And what we've seen with many of the people coming from Syria is they aren't necessarily coming directly from Syria. Many of them are coming from Turkey, Jordan, or Lebanon, where they haven't faced persecution or generalized violence in the same way. But there's a lack of opportunity and there's a a lack of the means to earn a living, provide education and a future for their children. Uh, And that's a, a slightly different motivation. So it's for each individual, it's not quite as easy to make that distinction. 
Astrid? Yeah, to to make it even more complicated, sometimes uh, it also changes along the migration path. So people might have just wanted to originally migrate for economic reasons to, for example, countries like Libya. We shall not forget that this was also a destination country for people to work in. But then they find themselves in a situation where it gets unstable and they need to move on to other countries or they are being persecuted. So then they become a refugee or they become actually really have grounds for persecution. Wenzel, you wanted to jump in quickly on this. Yeah, we see a lot of competition between refugees and migrants when they are, for example, queuing up at the reception centers. And we see a lot of competition between individual refugees from different countries. So, for example... The Syrians are our pet refugees. We love Syrians. And uh, Syrians became synonymous for refugees. And everybody from Iraq and Afghanistan is supposedly migrant. So even in the refugee centers, the two-class system is very obvious. And there we see people fighting with each other. And the Syrians became the preferred people, let's say, because of... Well, for obvious... Education standards or um, demographic reasons, or clearly because they were fleeing. The latest conflict, horrible, well-reported barrel bombs, gas, I mean, you name it. And we kind of are used to the hardship of Iraqis and Afghans, so this is kind of the newest. Mm -hmm. Because there was some criticism of Germany in other parts of Europe that Germany was being open to... Uh, Syrians who were considered very highly educated young men who would do good for the German economy, which is why I ask. I mean, it's probably partly true, but Iraqis are no morons, so (laughs) they're also young, educated people. I'm going to now turn to our American audience in New York. Jackie, to you. Thank you so very much, Alessandra. And I'd like to welcome Professor Richard Alba up to the microphone. Richard is a sociology professor at the CUNY Graduate Center, and he's co-author of a book on immigration and its challenges in North America and Western Europe. Richard, you've been listening to this. You know the situation very well. So what do we take away as a lesson that is applicable either here or internationally? Well, I think this is really a a pretty unique situation. And sort of the comment or question that I have really regards sort of the longer term in Germany in particular, since Germany has, let me say, been really so generous. And the German people, I think, have shown themselves to be motivated by very generous impulses in the way so many of them have received these migrants. And like Naomi, I think as an American, I feel ashamed, actually, that the United States has been absent from this discussion when, in fact, we have such a heavy responsibility for the events that are happening in that part of the world. That said, I have to say I'm very concerned uh, for the longer-run situation in Germany. This strikes me as an extraordinarily heavy lift for Germany. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are going to be accepted as asylum applicants. And many of them we know coming from Syria and Iraq are middle-class people. They have some degree of training and professional experience, but I think they're going to have a great deal of difficulty in translating their knowledge and experiences that they bring with them from home into any kind of commensurate position in the German labor market, which is very highly regulated. In addition, we know that they're going to be bringing eventually their children with them. These children have in many cases been out of school. 
So not only do they not know German, but they are really behind in their schooling. This is really a two-generation mm -hmm. problem um, that uh, Germany is going to have to face. And finally, one has to ask, we're talking about a very heavily Muslim immigration into European societies, including Germany, that, to be honest, have shown themselves to be very wary about uh, Muslim populations and where, you know, the Muslim, non-Muslim boundary is really a major societal cleavage. So I, I guess I'm interested in hearing the thoughts of the panel about how is this integration process going to proceed and does it have a chance to be successful? I think he painted a too dark a picture because, um, first of all, young people learn languages very fast. They're very motivated. Um, my guy who lives, my friend Hamba who lives in my house, um, he's a doctor and what he needs is another eight months or year at the university and then he can work as a doctor. There's a lack of doctors here because our doctors tend to go to Norway or the United States where they make more money. Uh, so we also have migrants, <laughs> German migrants. So yes, it's a challenge, it's difficult, but it's also something wonderful that happens. And we see so many volunteers. We see the birth of uh, civil society in Germany, not only uh, demonstrating or talking clever, but um, really helping, hands-on, going to these reception centers. Now, after months doing this, we see also some fatigue. People are tired, people are nervous, so we just have to organize it better. So nervous, nervous about what, exactly? Well, we certainly see a strain, and uh, we see a strain on the infrastructure. And as Professor Alba also pointed out, I mean, it will be the question, how do you provide, uh, in the times when more and more people keep coming, when the the numbers are not slowing down. How do you how, stop it? How, you don't at this point, right? Well, that's the question. I mean, this is what Merkel's task is currently, and this is why she realizes she has to work on the European level. She has to work with the international level. This is why she's currently going to Turkey, why she is trying to strike deals there, which at other times she probably would not have done. Um, I mean, we, we are really in ethical dilemmas at this point. Well, moment. you might want to mention this deal, and this deal is basically an exchange saying to Turkey, Germany has traditionally not been very keen on EU membership uh, for Turkey, but now that there's this crisis at the doorsteps of Europe, she is offering perhaps the prospect of EU membership for Turkey, but in exchange, some help by Turkey to stem the flow of people who are coming into the rest of Europe. And some people say that's a very dangerous exchange. Susan. I was just going to weigh in on the, the integration side a bit, because I think it is a, a very important um, issue that's been raised concerning the, the labor market integration piece and getting people into jobs as quickly as possible, because most of the individuals who are arriving will be here and they will stay. And it's important to make those investments as quickly as possible. And it's going to be difficult. I think um, Germany has some policies in place that will work quite to its advantage. Um, there's a credential recognition law here that's been in place for a few years to try to help people assess their skills and assess their qualifications. And I think that's something that other European countries can learn from, but there's still a lot of challenges. And, and money, and money on the exactly. table, obviously. Yeah. But what about, I mean, the big sort of one, of one of the many elephants, I suppose, in the room, I mean, this growing Muslim population. I mean, we have to say there is nervousness across Europe uh, about this. This aren't you? Isn't this manifested in in Germany? No, they, they you look at me to, as they have to grow up. I mean, Germany is not a Christian state, and uh, that's the reality. What shall we do? Multiculturalism, multi-religion of the U.S. I mean, what does the U.S. teach Europe about this topic? Well, to quote my colleague to the left, I mean, I think we also need to grow up in many respects because. 
although I believe it is a very vocal but small minority in the United States, we also have pushback from different pockets of people who say we don't want Muslims to come to the United States. But I think it is a very, very small minority of people, and it has been evidenced in the last several weeks and months Many, many more people are saying that's not who we are as Americans. That does not reflect our American values of welcoming refugees and welcoming immigrants. Of course, there are challenges. I don't mean to minimize how hard it is to start your life fresh in a new country, but these refugees have done extraordinarily well, and there is no historic precedent to show that Muslim refugees coming to the United States have had any more difficulties than any other refugee group or have wanted to do harm in the United States, which is one of the arguments that we keep hearing. All right, thank you. We're going to take a very short break here. We'll come back in just a moment. You're listening to Understanding Europe's Refugee Crisis on America Abroad. When we come back, more from our panelists and a few questions from our audience as well. If you want to chime in on these topics, you can post comments on our Facebook page. You can find the link at our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Understanding Europe's Refugee Crisis, an international town hall on America abroad. Now back to Jackie Leiden at WNYC in New York and Alessandra Galloni with Zocalo Public Square at Deutsche Bank in Berlin. We pick up the conversation with a question from the audience in Berlin. Uh, Marcus Walker from the Wall Street Journal. Two quick questions. Can the relocation idea work? This is the main policy device that the EU has come up with but it relies on the refugees actually wanting to live somewhere other than Germany. And Luxembourg was just unable to find um, 30 people who wanted to to move to Luxembourg. Among the hundreds of thousands who have come through Greece, they could find 15 so far. So um, if everybody wants to live in Germany or, to a lesser extent, Sweden, um, is relocation uh, a moot idea that gets argued over at EU summits and has no relevance? Um, secondly, how did Germany end up becoming the America of the EU, the, the, la- the land of hope and opportunity where uh-huh. everybody's going to make their fortune and find a better life? It's very hard to get work permits. Even people who could do a job that's available have to prove there's absolutely nobody else in the country already who could do it. Um, it. It doesn't have a good record at integrating people, and I think it will have big problems because of its own issues in its labor market. Uh, so how did this happen? Well, first of all, we had welcomed uh, Syrian refugees for many years, and the numbers were actually kept under the carpet. There were tens of thousands of uh, Syrian refugees coming under special programs for the last four years. So they uh, have families and friends, and and they want to come to Germany. Second of all, um, to, uh, to the second question with the labor market, you know, if I walk around in Berlin and, and walk by my local bakery, they're always looking for apprentices. The German industry, the corporations, they're looking for people who are working for them. They go to schools. They, they say, come on, don't go to university. Become a, you know, a plumber, and we, we pay a lot of money. So the German labor market needs young people. That's, I think uh, it comes now to, it's now a very good time for welcoming those refugees. On the other hand, of course, there comes a point when this is saturated, 
and that's a whole different topic we will but, discuss later. But probably. was this Merkel's, was it the Merkel's, Merkel's speech? Was it, you know, because I would like to also adding to Marcus's question, only 17 so far, 17, one seven, have actually been relocated, I uh, believe Eritreans uh, from Italy to Sweden, so not exactly a successful policy in terms of numbers. Well, okay. So yes, Marcus pointed out that yes, so far, not a lot of people have been relocated. And the challenge will be how do we ensure that people actually want to go to Poland or to others and, and other countries where signals have also been, well, ooh, we don't know, we you know, only want a certain type of refugees, etc. And how do we prevent that people will not move towards where the labor is? So we need to make sure that those countries in the relocation plans can also offer that opportunity. And we need to ensure that family groups that we actually in the relocation plan, they look into family groups. Because only if you have family members with you or, or clans or whatever, then people tend to also settle. It will not be an easy process. It might not work. You're absolutely right. But the question is, what's the alternative? Uh, Susan, I, I would like to go back to you on, on the strain on labor policy. I mean, it is true that many people, you, why do they want to come to Germany? Because Germany is the strongest economy in Europe. You know, all the people who come from Italy, let me tell you, I live there. I know it. They don't want to stay in Italy. You know, in fact, they do everything they can not to get fingerprinted. And because the Italian police turns a blind eye because they know that Italy could not possibly sustain them economically. So what do you do? I, yeah, I think it's, um, it is going to be an issue for the next two to five to ten years. Um, there's a need to invest resources now getting people in the labor market. Germany has already made changes to the law to try to allow people in after three months into jobs, but there are still uh, tremendous barriers to accessing those jobs. Priority, um, whether or not other foreign nationals get priority, issues of credentials, language issues. These are things that I also think the tremendous civil society response that we've seen in Germany and elsewhere can step in and fill, providing some of these supplements to provide language training um, to help people become acclimated. I think there's a greater role for civil society to play. Yes, Naomi. I, I would just like to add, also building off of the, the question posed, you know, since how did Germany become the United States, I should say that in the United States, our refugee resettlement program is predicated on the basic concept of self-sufficiency. Refugees are expected to go to work as quickly as possible. And what we have seen over the decades of resettlement practice in the United States, that refugees are a net gain economically to local communities. They start more small businesses than other groups. They are paying taxes from the second they arrive in our local communities. So sort of this concept that refugees are coming without this desire to work or without this desire to contribute has just not been proven to be the case in the United States and one of the ways that refugees get to work so quickly in the United States is because of their partnerships with civil society. Our refugee resettlement program is based on a public-private partnership. We have a network of nonprofit organizations around the country working with refugees to help them get on their feet, faith-based groups, ethnic community-based organizations. There's an entire community of people working with refugees so that they can start their lives fresh in, in America. Astrid, pass you, but a quick question. Here in Europe, it is difficult. Asylum seekers sometimes have to wait up to 18 months, a year to 18 months to have a work permit. It's, and that's where we get into the beauty of the European Union. You have, um, I mean, we have a European asylum uh, a common system that we want to put in place with common standards, but we're not there yet. Uh, and so you have individual um, measures, and it really depends which country you are living in. 
So that also determines if you can have access to the labor market. I wanted to point out, Marcus mentioned the Americanization, or, or has, when has your, uh, Germany become that? I mean, it's not a new process. Uh, Germany is actually, according to the OECD, uh, one of the countries with the most open labor markets, because we did know about our demographic shift. So in the past years, we have made a lot of changes to the labor market and to the laws. This was not geared towards asylum seekers. Last year, Germany saw 200,000. Those numbers now seem minuscule when we talk about our numbers now. But infrastructure has been put in place, so I'm not as pessimistic. Um, it needs a lot of resources, but Germany has resources. I think we can manage. I mean, it will take a lot of effort, but it's manageable. It depends very much on the politics. You know, if, if the politics are supportive of what you just said, then it will work. If the scaremongers, the meek, the cowards are winning and, and convince the people that they should be xenophobe, Islamophobe, then this will work as well. Susan? Yeah, I, was, um, I was just going to add, I think Germany is in a good place and has... The size of the challenge is obviously going to be huge, but has some things to teach other um, other EU countries in that regard in terms of um, what Germany has done to allow for the recognition of migrants' credentials and to allow access to training opportunities. I think there's definitely some learning that could happen there. Alessandra, if I could just jump in here. We've got quite a few people queuing up here in New York. So let's uh, begin by uh, our first questioner. Um, my name is Teresa Woods. I teach at the Cardozo Law School here in New York. I run the Refugee Representation Project of a Human Rights Clinic. You spoke earlier about preferences for Syrian refugees over other groups that are arriving to Germany. And so I would just want to ask the panel of experts um, how they would reconcile these preferences based on country of origin vis-a-vis -vis this global picture where there are many refugees sitting in camps around the world. It's not an easy question. Who would like to tackle that? Well, I, I will just say for Refugee Council USA's advocacy, we are saying that we should welcome in 2016 100,000 Syrians, but on top of 85,000 refugees from other parts of the world, because we recognize that globally we're looking at the largest refugee crisis since World War II, and Syrians comprise 4 million of those 19 million. That's a significant number, but there are forced massive displacements still going on in other parts of the world. It's a difficult question over there in New York. We have one here in Berlin. My name is Anne Richard. I'm from a project called Refugees on Rails, which is a programming school here in Berlin. I'm wondering, we're really looking at how can we push innovation in the refugee crisis and really try to come up with unique solutions. And my question to you is, have you come across truly innovative ways to work within this crisis and ideas that can really be scaled? Naomi. Well, I, I can't speak to innovative solutions in Europe, but what I can say is that in the United States, there are numbers of creative ways that local communities have thought about working with refugees. Everything from different types of local refugee youth groups to how to get faith communities more involved, to thinking about business incubator opportunities, to creative ways to do English language lessons in places of employment. But again, I keep going back to the importance of the role of civil society in the U.S., where so many great ideas about welcoming and how to incorporate refugees into their local communities that's where the great ideas are really coming from. 
Astrid, and then Susan. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really excited that we're living in these times where we have new technology and people like you also being creative. And in Germany, we have seen, for example, an Airbnb for refugees and for pairing people in need of homes with people who are wanting to share. We have seen online universities um, for refugees who want to continue their education, but they can't have access to a formal university, and they can do that from the camps or from wherever they are. So we're seeing uh, more and more, and uh, as you said, it's, it's the birth also of a new civil society here. Susan. Yeah, I think um, this is something that may not be quite as uh, innovative of a solution because it's existed for quite a while in Canada, but um, one of the things that there's been a lot of conversation about in Europe recently is the idea of private sponsorship, and I think this is a, another area where civil society can play a role, the idea that individuals or communities can um, come together to sponsor a refugee and bring them over from um, a community in Lebanon or Turkey and Jordan um, and help support them and help them to find a, a place in their new home. And that's something that um, Germany has done on a, on a small scale with Syrians already, and it's an idea that I think could be um, rolled out a, a bit more broadly in, in Europe as a whole, taking advantage of some of this new civil society interest. We have uh, one more question here, Alessandra. Yes, please. Mm. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm from the International Refugee Assistance Project. We're an organization that partners law students with lawyers working on refugee cases, and we represent thousands of refugees throughout the Middle East coming to Europe. Um, and so one of the most important things that we see, and this kind of echoes a couple things that have been mentioned, is this idea of recognizing that this is really an international issue. Uh, this is just now coming to Europe and is really struggling with capacity, but we've been seeing these issues happening in Lebanon and in Turkey and in Jordan for years now, and so I would love to hear what you have to say sort of about how do we efficiently and in an organized manner and in a fair way provide registration and protection for refugees from wherever their first place of asylum is, and so I'd love to hear about what you're doing in Germany. Who wants to take that easy question? <laughs> Susan. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, it's, it's a very tough question. Um, the efforts that have been made to improve registration, emergency response, those sorts of things all would need to be part of a perfect solution, as would the conversation about how to divide responsibility within the European Union and also um, providing more aid in the region. The additional point that I would just make, though, is that... This is a global issue, and it requires a global response. This is not Europe's problem alone. Um, one of the lessons that we can take from this crisis in particular is that migration and refugee crises aren't just an issue for migration policymakers or for um, humanitarian agencies. These are crises that need to be viewed from a foreign policy perspective, from a development perspective, and we can't wait until they reach our borders. Um, we need to be intervening earlier um, to try to resolve some of the conflicts that are producing displacement, but also to provide aid and assistance to um, the countries that are hosting most of the world's refugees. It's, you hear quite a bit, 86% um, of the world's refugees are being hosted in developing countries, and they're facing their own challenges. Yeah. And I would just also add to that that in addition to thinking about what happens once refugees arrive in Europe, we need to be thinking about creating other legal migration mechanisms so that refugees aren't forced to hide and then perhaps die in the back of a truck or, you know, crowd onto rubber rafts. You know, there are more dignified ways for human beings to get to safety, and we need to think about how we can implement those creatively as a global community. We have a question Hello, I'm Andres Martinez. I'm part of the Zocalo team, and I'm, I also teach at Arizona State University. 
and perhaps it's because I'm an American, I'm a little bit confused about whether the destination, the host for these refugees is the individual nation state or the European Union. And so my question, I guess, would be for Wenzel and Astrid. Uh, do you think that the refugee seeking asylum has a right to pick a country, or am I arriving at the European Union and therefore should be open to being relocated to any member state? And I guess the second part of the question would be, in the long run, does it make a difference if you have freedom of labor movement within the EU? Um, can't I then just pick up and leave Poland and go to Germany over time? That's a very good question because it gets to the heart of the difference between the EU, obviously, and the U.S. in that the U.S. can make a single policy, the EU cannot. Well, yes, that's the beauty of the EU again. Um, what we're striving, as we said, uh, there is a common European asylum system or a standard that we want to achieve. And your question was, well, um, are we entering the EU or is someone entering a nation state? And ideally, of course, in the long run, we want to come to uh, a setting where they enter the EU. Um, but as long as the standards are not the same, of course they are entering a nation state. The idea here is, in the relocation plan at least, if they are relocated to a certain country, that they also receive the benefits there and if they're registered. And usually you have a five-year rule that you have to stay in that country before you can move to another EU member state. But of course the question is, is it more enticing to go into the black economy and to work there because you might not have any access to a, a good job? and you're willing to give up some of your rights, that might be an option uh, for some. And so the question is, will we see a rise of irregular migrants that are living in the shadow economy, don't have access to rights or, or services? Susan. I would just um, say that I think that's a, an interesting question also to pose at a, at a global level. Do you have a right to choose where you seek asylum? Because it's something that we're seeing from many of the people moving on from the countries of first asylum like Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan. They are already safe from protection, but they don't have access to opportunities. Do you have the right to choose where you go based on the level of opportunities and rights that will be offered to you? Just yeah. Wenzel, quickly, and then okay. I think human rights thinks um, there is no right to pick a country. But you can't force anybody to live in a country. So there's a dilemma. Hmm. And, and I would just add to that that I'm not sure how much choice there really is. When somebody is choosing to leave Turkey to make their way to Europe, I don't think it's because, you know, nobody's suggesting this, but it's not because they want a vacation in Berlin. It's because they're not able to work in Turkey, because they, their kids can't go to school. I mean, these are basic fundamental things. I think we just need to keep in mind that we need to treat this crisis in a humane and dignified way way and um, to really keep in mind again just to reiterate that there is not a lot of choice when people are leaving their countries of first asylum they're doing it to save their lives thank you so much everyone this concludes our discussion of what the world can learn from europe's refugee crisis thank you You've been listening to Understanding Europe's Refugee Crisis on America Abroad. The producers of this hour are Mia Lobel and Rob Sachs and the team at Zocalo Public Square, with additional production help from Flan Williams. Thanks to Democracy International, NPR Berlin, and the whole staff at WNYC's Green Space. We also thank our co-hosts, Jackie Leiden at WNYC in New York and Alessandra Galoni at Deutsche Bank in Berlin. 
You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, find us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. PRI Public Radio International.